Okay, let's pray and then we'll get started. (sighs) Father, give us a focus. Give us a focus on your word. Lord, give us a reverence for what you have to say to us. Lord, thank you so much for how good you've been to us. And Lord, that you have a calling on our life. God, I thank you, even though it's hard to think of it in the right perspective sometimes, I thank you for placing us in this time, in this place. For just such a season as this, Lord, you have put us here, not only together, but Lord, to be equipped by you and to have an impact on this generation. Lord, equip us for that task because we recognize immediately that we don't have what it takes in ourselves. But by the power of your spirit, we absolutely do. We have an endless supply. And so, Lord, teach us to rely upon you. Lord, as we've sung and as we'll see here in in our, our text for this morning, Lord, teach us that important reliance on you in the midst of really hard times, even in situations of life and death. Show us, Jesus, how you are more than sufficient. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. Work in us as we study this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's important to recognize that here in Daniel chapter 6, much has happened, much time has passed from the beginning of the book of Daniel. And, and this is fascinating to me that when when Daniel was taken into exile in 605 BC, and that's kind of where our story began at the beginning as we've been studying verse by verse through Daniel, um, approximately he was around 15 years old. So he was a teenager when he was taken into exile. But now the time frame of chapter 6 is all the way down at 539 BC, which is the second or third year after the conquest of Babylon by the Medo-Persians. And what's interesting about that is this puts Daniel right around 82 years old now. And so I don't know about you guys, but when uh, some of the kids' books that I would look at that would have Daniel in the lion's den, he'd be young. He was like this teenager just sitting in there. It's like, no, 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 no. By the time you get to this point, Daniel is an 82-year-old man. He's a little older than I am. And so it's interesting to think about a older man in his senior years, most likely in the last decade of his life, being in the situation that he's in here in Daniel chapter 6, which I've been really excited to get to just because it's such a well-known story and we've heard it so many times, but there's some fascinating things that I want us to look at in this chapter. And it's important to know the age of Daniel because it's come up in conversation for me recently in a number of different ways, the difficulty of finishing well. The difficulty of finishing our lives well. I believe I've shared the following quote before, but Henry Longfellow said, Great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. Great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. We want to end our lives well. The first, the first scenario that I think of, the first person that comes to mind when I think of, wow, that's a bummer he didn't end well, biblically is Hezekiah. I always think about Hezekiah and how, how he ended it, and it wasn't really well. And the reason you're like, well, he had a great reign, and, and you know, God gave him more years when he prayed to him when he was sick. Yeah, but Hezekiah was totally unconcerned about what happened in the next generation. He was letting off the gas at the end of his life. He was becoming careless with what he was doing and how he was running his kingdom. And it really led to the situation that the children of Israel are in now in exile in Babylon because Hezekiah was the one who allowed the Babylonian envoys to walk through the temple and see all the riches, if you remember that. And so the art of ending is far greater. We need to end well. And as we study Daniel 6, it's important to remember it's very likely that Daniel's at the end of his time that he's within that last decade of his life, and yet he has not lost his ability 
within the kingdom to function as the role that the king has given him, but also he has not failed in his integrity, and most importantly, he has not failed in his love and devotion to God. He is ending really well. And for a lot of us here this morning, we may think, well, the end is a long way off for me. That may be true, but it may not be true. The end may not be far off for any of us. We don't know this. And so living our lives to live this day and end it well. So are you ready? I hope so, because we're going to start Daniel 6. Here we go. We're only getting through the first 10 verses this morning. We'll finish the chapter next week, but let's begin by looking at the first three. Daniel 6, 1 begins this way. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. And Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Interesting. Darius was introduced at the end of chapter five. If you remember last week, as BJ was teaching, we got to the end of chapter five. And as the handwriting on the wall, the prophetic message there came to pass that very evening, Belshazzar was put to death and Darius takes over. And so as this has happened, this, this kingdom is now under new leadership. It's now under a new rule. And essentially it was taken from within because as BJ talked about last week, the, the waterway was stopped up and the armies of the Medo-Persians walked right underneath under that, that causeway. They didn't even have to knock any walls down. They just walked in and took the city essentially without a fight. Now what's interesting, just to give you guys some background on this, cause I, you know, every now and then I told you I'm going to do this throughout Daniel, get a little more Bible, you know, Bible class-ish. There's some fascinating things about Darius, and, and BJ talked about this last week. When we were talking about Belshazzar, there's been some more recent archaeological finds that prove the reign of Belshazzar as a co-regent. Fascinating thing to think about in the terms of history and how that worked, not only in foreign kingdoms, but also in Israeli kingdoms towards the end of the monarchical reign. But the identity of Darius is still uncertain. It's still uncertain, and to date, there's no reference to Darius the Mede. Uh, it hasn't been discovered in, in archaeology at all, and in fact, reference to Darius's conquering Babylon even seems to be wrong because the historical records give that honor to a general of Cyrus named Ugbaru. And so you come to this point where some people will discredit the account of Daniel, and so I want to equip us with knowledge. Arm yourselves with knowledge. So here, here's what we need to realize here. Just as was the case with for Belshazzar, there's some, some explanations as to why, and we saw that come up in archaeology later for him, but for Darius, there's some, there's some possibilities here that we need to look at. First half, Darius is an honorific title that means royal one. We've seen this happen in scripture before. Back in Genesis, we saw a man named Abimelech, and he was referenced again as Abimelech further on down the road. Abimelech most likely was just a title for royalty for a Philistine nation. It probably wasn't his proper name. It was the title for the position that he held. Darius quite possibly is the same title, and that gives us some understanding as to who we might be dealing with here. The title can apply to a man of a different name. It really just tells you what his job is or what his position is. He's a royal one. He's the leader. He's the king. He's the ruler. Makes sense? So what's interesting is there's two possible things that could be going on here. Here's two possible identities for Darius. He could be the general Ugbaru, which would make a lot of sense. This could be the general that conquered the city initially and was then given this position. We know from history, if you look at secular history, that he ruled in Babylon for a year before Cyrus came and was himself crowned king. So the timeline might move a little bit, but if this is Ugbaru, it's very 
possible that he is the one who is referred to as Darius. And this could quite possibly be verified by Daniel 9.1, which states that Darius was made king over Babylon. The verse uses the passive stem of the verb homlak rather than malak, which would make more sense if it was an an imperative or an active form. And that means that it would have been used, uh, homlak would have been used for Darius if he was a sub-king who is in a temporary rule position. Does that make sense? Okay, for most of us. That's good. Okay, so this could be Ugbaru. Also, the uh, the second possibility is that Darius could be Cyrus himself. Uh, it's possible this could be Cyrus. This is more problematic since a proper pronunciation of verse 28 of this chapter is so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It seems to differentiate. But what's fascinating, don't worry, I'm almost done with the boring stuff. I'm sorry, this is just fascinating to me. You have to go along the ride with me, okay? You got to go up the thing before you go down it. Okay, so you're going to notice that most of your Bibles will have a footnote about that verse, about Daniel 6.28, because it'll note that the and in that verse could be translated even. Instead of and, even could be used, which would actually clear up the whole debate if that was the proper context, because it would be saying that he, he prospered during the reign of Darius, even Cyrus, the Persian. So it could be identifying them as the same person. So what are the poss- what's the likelihood of one of these two guys being Darius? It's pretty likely. Uh, there, there really isn't anyone else in the field of study. Why does it matter? Because people try to discredit scripture because of discrepancies such as this. And there are logical explanations when you look at the details. That's why I give you the details. You're like, I'll never remember that. You'll remember that there were details. And you can come ask me and I'll pull up the notes because I won't remember either. Okay, so here we go. This is the Holy Word of God we're looking at. This is awesome. So Darius establishes the leadership of Babylon upon coming into rule. He establishes the leadership of his new kingdom, and under his rule, he appoints 120 satraps or governors that represent the authority of the king in both civil and military matters. So these guys are like just little mini governors that are keeping watch of everything. You know how this works. The president is the only guy in charge. There's governors and there's you know mayors and there's all these people in positions of authority. It makes sense. On a big area with a lot of people, you need a lot of leadership. So over these 120 king, oh, 120 um, satraps, the king appoints three men to make sure that, as the scripture says, you can look at it, to make sure that the king would not be defrauded. Defrauded. There's a word to teach your kids. You know, like, you do not defraud me. You will give me one-tenth of your salary. And you're like, you're giving me my allowance. Yes, I want one-tenth back. Here, here's, here's the purpose of not being defrauded. He's making sure that his satraps, these 120 guys, are not cheating him out of any taxes that they're collecting. So these three men that take position over the 120 are making sure that they're paying their dues, that the taxes are coming in. It makes sense when you think about government, when you think about how order is to be restored and, and, and maintained. So these things are be properly collected without any hanky panky from these guys, basically. That's that's the vernacular, okay? And what do you know but Daniel's one of them? What have we seen throughout the book of Daniel thus far? Is that over and over and over again, Daniel finds himself in these positions of leadership, even over advisors, that he is held in higher regard, proven, chapter one, proven to be more wise and, and a better counselor than all the others, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And over and over again, we see that Daniel is held in this position uh, of just distinguished knowledge and ability. And just when he was, as when he was young, he distinguishes himself here from the rest because of what it says, an extraordinary spirit. He has an extraordinary ability. It's just not normal. 
And we know that this was given to him by God. And the plan from this point, it says in the text, was to make him ruler over the king kingdom. Now, here's something that's interesting. Clearly, that's not going to be ruler over Darius, right? I mean, the big man's going to stay the big man. But he's saying, you can be ruler over all these things so long as you're underneath me. What does this remind you of in scripture? Joseph. Reminds me of Joseph. First thing I think of, right? Joseph was made ruler in Genesis 41, verse 40. But it says that Pharaoh's the only one over him, but Joseph was in charge of all the other things. Why? Because he was a wise, faithful, intelligent, full of integrity. You, you see these things about like, how often in scripture do we look at people and we're like, I don't want to be like that person right? Look at David and you're like, oh, I love King David. Yeah, me too. But there's a lot about his life I do not want to repeat, right? We look at people in scripture that God used, but like none of us should model our life like Samson, right? Not even like JL. You're like, what a woman of heart. Yeah, but don't go around driving tent pegs into people's temples. It's just not cool. Like it's not going to go over very well, right? And so we look at the different people in scripture and go, there's some cases that we can look at and be like, okay, I see what how God used them, but I don't want to repeat that. With a guy like Joseph and a guy like Daniel, you're hard-pressed to find anything that you don't want to emulate in your life, that you don't want your life to look like, because these guys distinguish themselves as those who had an, ex- an extraordinary ability uh, to minister the truth of God in very difficult situations. And something to note about both of them, they were both in exile. They were both in exile, Daniel in Babylon and Joseph in Egypt. Now think about this. We think about the conditions and the place where we live and how much it limits us. Well, I'm just not free to do what I need to do here. If I could just be free, I could be a real Christian, right, Anna? She's back there chuckling at me. These men were prospering in exile. They were effective in exile. And this teaches us a very important thing. You guys, God can use us wherever we are in whatever situation so long as we're submitted to him, so long as we are obedient to him. We'll expound on his trustworthiness more later, but as is often the case, when the Lord is working and blessing, everything goes perfect. Is that what you learned? (laughs) When the Lord is blessing you, everything just stays perfect. I mean, it's been 10 years, not one problem. Not one thing has broken in my house. No water's come gushing out from under my cabinets recently. It did two weeks ago. You guys, like, when we're walking with the Lord, just things happen. Why? Because we get attacked. We get attacked when we're working for the Lord. Notice what happens next. Verse 4. The administrators and the satraps, therefore, because of the plan to put Daniel over the entire realm, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Oh, darn it all. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel. Please, if you're an underline in your Bible, underline unless. Unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. There's only one way we're going to trap this man. And it's going to have to do with his worship of his God. Because that's the one thing that he is so over the top devoted to. It's the thing he is so 100% in for. The desire to place Daniel in this position over all the other governors creates resentment and jealousy. And as you would expect, these men are looking for a way to discredit him. And as we'll see shortly, their jealousy doesn't just begin at, well, how do we discredit him so that he doesn't get this position? They're willing to go to murder to get rid of him. They're willing to murder him in order to remove him from this position. Jealousy is dangerous. 
Now remember again that Daniel's in his 80s here. And many of these satraps were likely to have served with him for a number of years. Many of these guys probably were retained from the Babylonian kingdom and brought into service of the new king of Darius. And so they likely have had a lot of time to come up with some accusations against Daniel with by now. Surely by now you'd have something like, dude, he owed me 25 cents and he gave me 24. Got him. You know, like they, they have, they have nothing. They have nothing. They couldn't find anything it says in the text to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. (sighs) Remember I told you guys that Daniel's been working me really hard? Like, this has been really difficult to study through because I've been trying to, like, pre-preach these messages to myself. Can this be said about me? That I've always been faithful? That I'm always responsible and completely trustworthy. We already know the second one's out the window because I'm a youth pastor. Of course I haven't always been responsible. <laughs> I've asked kids to do things that I won't tell you about. But here, here's the thing. like, <laughs> Don't tell your parents you fell off that. I'll, I'll help you. Come on, we'll get that leg better by the end of camp. But you guys, if, if you think about this, is that us? Are, are we like Daniel in this way? We're... we're, are, we're <laughs> We're faithful, we're always responsible and completely trustworthy because we should be. And that's not condemnation, church. It reveals a lack of trust in God. It reveals a lack of faith. We can't have that lack of faith that we don't trust in him to fill us and strengthen us so that we are these things because we can be in Jesus. Amen? We can be. These men know that the only way they're going to be able to trap Daniel is to ban worship of God. Find a way to ban the worship of God. Would they get us with that? You're like, well, I, I, you know, I, I come to church semi-regularly. That's not what I'm talking about. Would they be able to catch you in your home doing it? Because that's how they're going to catch Daniel. They're not going to catch Daniel walking to church. There weren't churches in Babylon. They're going to catch him going to church at home three times a day in prayer. Can they catch you in the same way? What this reminded me of as I was reading this, you guys, not to get too far ahead of myself, it reminded me of the trial of Jesus in Mark 14. And here's how it reminded me of that. They brought these false witnesses against him. Remember that? And none of the testimonies were lining up, and the Sanhedrin's getting fried. They're really, they're looking for any way to accuse Jesus, right? How can we accuse Jesus? What can we bring against him? And so they're bringing all these false witnesses in and they're arguing about it. And the Sanhedrin's looking for a way to condemn Jesus to death. And it says that even when it, they're talking about him saying that he'd tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, even those things that Jesus actually said, they couldn't get the stories to line up right. And so these witnesses were completely discredited. In the end, how did they condemn Jesus? How did they condemn Jesus in the end? He answered truthfully an accusation that they brought against him when they looked at him and said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. Yes, you finally asked the right question. I am. They condemned him for speaking the truth. Church, if we are going to be condemned, let it be for speaking truth. Let it be for saying the right thing. Let it be for representing God. If you're going to condemn me, that's the only thing you're getting me on because that's the only thing they got Jesus on was speaking truth, evil, and never forget this church. We look at it and go, so that's how they won. Ha! They didn't win. They didn't win. 
Evil was not victorious when Jesus was sent to the cross. Evil was defeated. Sin was defeated there. Death was defeated there. Jesus won by speaking truth and being condemned by sinful people. And that should give us a lot of hope. He gave us an example of obedience to the Father regardless of consequence because obeying God is the victory. Please don't ever forget that. Obeying God is the victory. Victory is not the result that we see in front of us. Victory is the end and the culmination of history when Jesus rules and reigns forevermore. Amen? That is victory. And so our obedience here in this life is victory. So what's their plan? Well, the plan unfolds in verse 6. Back in Babylon, so the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. They're not being schmoozers. That's just being polite. All the administrators of the kingdom, verse 7, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. Fascinating. There's a little more to this, I think, than we would look at initially and go, wow, this guy's sure got a lot of arrogance. Sure, he's probably got plenty, plenty of arrogance and pride. But there's more to this than you would think. It's very possible this is a a, a subtle way for him to unite the kingdom. Unite the kingdom if he was some type of a mediator in a priestly role rather than someone to be worshipped, meaning that if people were going to bring their prayers or their worship, it would go through him to whatever deity. And so it's interesting to think about it in that way, thinking of them having to come to him and seeing him in that spiritual role of leadership. It's not right. It's still way wrong and sinful, but it kind of helps you understand a little bit about Darius because as we're going to see farther along, especially next week, his reaction to what what's going on with Daniel throughout all this is pretty positive in Daniel's favor. He seems to be very much in Daniel's favor. And so it kind of helps us understand that The king, I'm not trying to make this a good thing. It's a bad thing, but it helps you understand what he's probably trying to do here is bring the kingdom together under his leadership. Now, the beginning of the plot to end Daniel starts with a lie. Did you catch it? When they came, not, not, you know, may the king live forever. That's not a lie. That's, they actually said that. But the administrators of the kingdom, they say to him, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed. What? They've agreed on this plan? I tell you one guy that hasn't agreed to it, Daniel. Why do we know that? Because in the next verse it says, when he heard about it, they went to the king without his knowledge. They went to the king and said, here's something that you should do. And we know not only based on his character, but based on the following verse, that Daniel had no idea what they were up to. All he could do was respond to it. Church, really quick, this is a freebie, not in the notes. We must respond, not react responding, we think about what we're doing. We think about it, we pray about it, we consider it. There may be moments like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where we're in this situation where we have to make a choice, we have to make a decision right then and there. But we will have trained for that by responding to things that come up in our lives through prayer and seeking after God's wisdom and reading our Bibles. If we are preparing ourselves in that way to respond, not just to react to something, oftentimes my reactions are sinful responding and thinking about what we're saying, that's wisdom. That's wisdom and it's something that we should do. Daniel is going to respond to this. He's not going to react to it. 
And so as the situation deteriorates, I want us to know this, you guys. I want us to remember this. It's still wrong what these men are trying to do with Darius, even if Darius didn't really understand what they were up to, because clearly I think from the text later on, he wasn't really understanding what they were trying to do here. And so it's still wrong to do that. But remember this, God knows the intentions of Darius's heart. God knows the intentions of Daniel's heart. And God knows the intentions of these men's heart who are trying to put him to death. God knows the intentions of the heart. May we never forget that. So as they bring this to the king, as they bring this request to him, we discover something that we find in secular history about the Medo-Persians, that when there was this type of a law that was put into place for this 30-day period, the irrevocability of this is confirmed in Esther chapter 1, it's confirmed in Esther chapter 8, and it's also in secular literature, if you want to get into some real deep reading, Diodorus of Sicily, you can read about it. I like to dabble a little bit. I am not a scholar. Please settle that. I am not a scholar, but I love to read stuff. And so if you read some different things about these periods in history, you can see these laws of the Medo-Persians as being noted as irrevocable. If it's in place, even the king himself cannot break it, no matter how hard he wants to. So the punishment for disobeying this edict would be to be thrown to hungry lions. And we know that that was something historically that the Medo-Persians would do as well. We have documentation of that in history. Here's where this gets good, and we'll spend a bit of time here. Look at verse 10. Let's read it carefully. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. Okay, so let's clear something up here that's really important about Daniel's mindset. We can look at it and go, he has a great prayer life. Daniel has a great devotional life. This is awesome. Three times a day. No, that's, that's fantastic. Absolutely. But we need to understand why he's praying with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Why is he doing this in this specific way? Because, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. 1 Kings 8, verses 44 through 49. Solomon is praying and dedicating the temple. He's praying and dedicating the temple. This is when you know someone is praying in a very powerful way. He is speaking of things that are going to happen. Imagine being at this temple dedication. The kingdom has never been more solid than in, it, than in its current situation at that time. After David had handed this kingdom over to Solomon, Solomon prospered and was so wise in so many ways. And, and we see the kingdom full of riches, full of glory, full of splendor. And here, at this point, the temple having been built, this amazing spectacle, he's praying over this and he prays these words. I just want us to think about being really stable, really comfortable, really solid in where we are, and this is what he prays in verse 44. When your people go out to fight against their enemies, wherever you send them, and they pray to the Lord in the direction of the city you have chosen, the temple I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Great reminder. When they sin, and they will. 
and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to the enemy's country, whether distant or nearby. And when they come to their senses in the land where they, they are, they were deported and repent and petition you in their captors land. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive. And when you, they pray to you in the direction of their land that you give their ancestors the city you have chosen the temple I have built for your name. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place, their, their prayer and petition, and uphold their cause. You want to know why Daniel's praying towards Jerusalem three times a day? That's why. He's there crying out to God with an open heart saying, let us come home. Let us come home. If you go farther along in Daniel, especially into chapter 9, you discover that Daniel in this time period has been revealed. We don't know when, but in this time period has been shown the 70 weeks. He's been shown that the time is drawing near for them to go home. And he is crying out to God for him to be able to go home. They want to return to their land. And so he is intentionally crying out to God for this to happen. When we read scripture church as the New Testament church, when we read scripture, do we look at the things we read and do we respond Do we respond and are we broken because of them? Because this man's on his knees in a time where it could cost him his life. He is on his knees crying out to God in a situation that is life and death. This obedience and this looking to God with his heart and soul is the very posture that people need to follow. Brokenness, humility, longing, seeking. How can Daniel be a true leader in Babylon? If he's not obedient to the one who gave him that position, how can he be an authentic leader without being in this position? Because think about this. Daniel's not just leading over the satraps. He's not just an advisor to the king. There are other exiles. There are other exiles that he is leading and being an example to in all of the land of Babylon. Who would they look up to over Daniel? No one. Nobody had a higher position in that kingdom. And what do they find Daniel doing? What would the exiles see Daniel doing? On his knees, windows open, crying out to go home. Crying out for God to fulfill. And admitting we are broken. We'll see it in a prayer of Daniel later on in the book. We are broken. We are wretched. Would you heal us? Would you cleanse us? Would you take us back again? It's a powerful thing to see a man who is a true leader by example of prayer. By example of brokenness and humility. He recognizes that all that he has, as he gives thanks in this verse, as you look at verse 10, he's giving thanks. All that he has, his position, his ability, his gifting, has come from the Lord. Church, not to make too much of a a rememberable statement, but do you know what kind of leaders we need? We need leaders who pray with the windows open. That's what we need. And I'm not talking about going to your house, you know, throwing open the window and be like, neighbors, come and watch. Right? That's the Pharisee. (laughs) That's the Pharisee. When I say men who, leaders, men and women, leaders who pray with the windows open, I'm talking about people who will pray no matter what is going on. I'm talking about people who will boldly pray no matter what's happening in the world around them, no matter what the consequence is. Daniel was in his home. He was not doing this for a show. We need people who are willing to obey God no matter what. 
no matter what. And not so that we can show these people out there how much better we are than them and show them out, out there how much more together we are. If you are a part of this church, you know how untogether we are. You know that we don't have all of our things, you know, down pat. And you're like, what's going on with those? I don't know. We're just doing the best we can. Praise God. You know, like we're just trying to do the right thing and honor the Lord in the midst of it. But here's the point. We do this so that people see something that they lack. And it's not us. I lack being like you. Oh, trust me. You're not lacking anything if you're not like me. Here's the point. You lack Jesus. You lack the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You lack the Savior. That's what you need. That's our purpose in doing this. That's our purpose of having this lifestyle is for people to see Christ in us, to see how great he is, to see how powerful he is and how able to save even them he is. Never forget that Daniel didn't go about his business in a way to draw attention to himself. Daniel went about his business through being kind, through being winsome in speech, asking permission, Like Daniel is very gentle when you see his interactions, especially in the early on time. And even as he reveals to Belshazzar in chapter five, how bad things are about to be in a matter of hours. And even as he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar, how bad things are going to be for him for seven years as he crawls around and eats grass, you know, like he, he is so gentle in the way he delivers these things and winsome and attitude shows them there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for you to submit to God. There's an opportunity for you to not have this come to fruition in your life, this horrible consequence and penalty for sin because God can save you from it. And we need to have the same attitude as Daniel. Are we winsome in speech and attitude? Does my attitude make people want Jesus? Does my speech make people want Jesus? Because they should. And when threats have come his way, he's been uncompromising. And here again, we find him even at the end of his life in the last decade with death on the line. He's praying. You're welcome. Now I know how many of you watch The Princess Bride. That was very revealing. You guys, when death is on the line, he's praying. He's praying. You guys, the commentator boy said this. All he had to do was stop praying openly for one month. He's not saying that he should. He's like just putting this out there. All he had to do was stop praying openly for one month. Indeed, he could be subtle. He could close his windows so his prayers would not be seen. Or better yet, pray in bed at night. And we look at that and go, okay, is that really sin? I mean, (laughs) for Daniel it was. Why? Because he was obeying the Lord's command to open those windows and to pray towards his city. Because he believed with all his heart that that was abandonment to God. That was worth doing. He could have let his devotion slide for a month. After all, there are so many Christians today who probably allow a month or more to slide by without any significant devotional time. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm looking at the ceiling. But how many of us are those people where that would be no big deal? And Daniel's like, not even once. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, baby. I'll be praying at that window. Because it matters. It was a priority. Daniel recognized what the early church would half a millennia later in Acts 5.29. Peter and the apostles replied to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than people. We must obey God. We must submit to God above all things. And the strength of our faith is proven in our points of greatest weakness. In fact, D.L. Moody once said this, real true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. 
Real true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's faith or leaning on God's strength, not God's faith. God has lots of them. God's strength. You guys, that's where our faith is activated is when we are empty, when we are broken, when we are weak and we lean into him, when we recognize him. What did Daniel's enemies, as we close off with this thought, what did Daniel's enemies anticipate? Look at verse 11. And we'll, we'll go over this a little more thoroughly, but just, just for kicks. Look at verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning, imploring his God. What did you think they expected to find? Well, they got together as a group, grabbed some lunch first, you know, and then ran over there. It seems like they had a plan, right? They show up as a group. This is a coordinated thing. Well, it's about 12 o'clock. We should head over. Why? Because Daniel's going to be a praying in front of the window, and we're going to bust him. This was their plan. This is what's interesting to me, churches. We might look at that and go, those snakes. How amazing is it that Daniel was that predictable? How amazing is it that they had no doubt what they would find there? If someone walked into our house randomly, by the way, that's not cool. Don't just go walking into each other's houses. Um, my house is like that because we have home group and people just walk in. It's fine. It doesn't happen all the way. It doesn't always happen that way. Please don't do that whenever. But like, you know, like they'll just walk right in. If people just walk into my home, are they going to find me living a life that honors God? Are they going to find my family functioning as a family that is serving and honoring Christ? Is that what they're going to find amongst us, church? Because this is happening in his home. It's not happening in the public sphere. And remember what I told you, what God is training for, training us for in private will be brought into public. What he's training us for in the private sector, he will bring into the light. He will bring into the public sphere. We're not trying to find a public sphere to showcase our belief in Jesus. We are living it at home so that when it is revealed, they will see something authentic. And we will not be able to be accused as being hypocrites. They expected to find him there. And when the world expects to find you praying and worshiping God, you're doing something right. You're doing it right. Is our reputation, church, one of prayer, kindness, a winsome attitude, thankfulness, and obedience? If it's not, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus' church. Heads up. Not heads up as in here's a come like pull your head up. Strengthen your weak knees. As it would say in Hebrews chapter 12, when God is disciplining us, he's doing it for a reason. He's not condemning us. Romans 8 one says there's no condemnation. So we take this as a challenge, as a wake-up call. Is this what defines my life? Is my reputation something that represents Jesus or does it represent me? Is my re- reputation just who I am or is it who Jesus is because he is so amazingly blasting through my every cell with his light that all people can see is him? That's the goal. That's the journey. Let's seek to honor Christ in this way and be transformed into his image, guys. That's what we're here for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives because of Jesus. I'm so thankful, Lord, for what I've been able to see even in almost a year now of being in this ministry. Lord, I've seen you do so many things in all the years of ministry, Lord, I've seen you transform so many lives. 
I've seen you translate so many people from darkness into light. And Lord, the battle doesn't end there. And even though we're not fighting for a victory, the victory is already won in you. We're still fighting from that victory. We're still in a battle against sin and flesh. And Lord, I know that it convicts me so much when I see a man like Daniel, Lord, who is just known as being faithful. Lord, who's known as being trustworthy in all things. And God, I want to be known for those things. But Lord, I see my own heart. And and Jesus, it just brings me to my knees at your feet. I pray, Lord, that that's where we would find ourselves is in this humble submission. Just longing for more of you. Longing for you to change our hearts. Longing for you to make us more and more like you every day. And so, Lord, I pray that we would resist the draw to be conformed to the ways of the world and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son. Father, that's what we want. It's a difficult road. Would you work in us to accomplish this for the glory of your name and your kingdom?